Welcome to the Anthropology and Business Podcast, where you'll learn about the many ways anthropology is applied in business and why business anthropology is one of the most effective lenses for making sense of organizations and consumers. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in advertising, marketing, consumer behavior, organizational culture, user experience, and many other roles, you'll learn firsthand what it means to do business anthropology and how the work differs from academic anthropology. We will discuss issues like the pace and depth of research in business, our visibility and influence as practitioners, and what we can do to build our brand. We will also focus on the value and impact of our research in business so that we can help business leaders understand why they should be hiring anthropologists. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Matt Arts of Anthro, Anthropology and Business Podcast. Uh, today, I'm with Adam Gamwell, who many of you will know from this Anthro Life Podcast. Um, Adam is a has a PhD in cultural anthropology from Brandeis, today a senior researcher at Motive Base, uh, and previously co-founder of Missing Link and, of course, the host of TAL. So, Adam, thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. Um, would you mind by telling everybody how you got interested in anthropology? Yeah, sure. And thanks, thanks for having me on. It's it's an honor to be here. It's always always fun to talk with you. Um, and I and I love all the work you're doing, man. You're, you're putting out so many forms of content thanks. and helping get Anthro into the the stratosphere. So, um, a salute to a <laughs> a fellow media media uh, magnate here. Um, but yeah, so so Anthro, you know, on one level, anthropology's kind of been in my DNA from one being a child and loving Indiana Jones, um, which is probably an answer that that. Most of us will say on some level, or maybe be willing to admit. Um, and you know, it was, it was, it was uh, one of the classes I took in college. Like first semester, I had to pick an elective. Like you know, also so it's probably a common story. And I loved cultural anthropology. The class it was super interesting, and so that just kind of kicked off my interest. Um, and then that that just grew over time, and you know, ended up looking into graduate school, and and uh, you know. Um, moved from Texas, where I'm from, to to Boston to go to Brandeis for a master's, and ended up also doing PhD there. And um, you know, what really kind of sparked my continued interest was was again getting these questions of you know both what it means to be human in this broad sense, but then as I moved through both masters and into PhD, I became increasingly interested in what we now call like applied anthropology, and then from there. We'll see that that things kind of moved and shifted further into design anthropology, and then now into into business anthropology. And so, I see all these pieces kind of working together in, in different frameworks. But you know, what this was kind of got me thinking about was how do we uh, do work as anthropologists and, and bring an anthropological mindset to helping you know people solve problems. And so, as part of my PhD research, I was working with an NGO in Southern Peru, um, in designing conservation programs for, for quinoa farmers. And so it was a mix of both doing kind of, um, we call it interventionist work. This is where, kind of where I found design anthropology and, uh, doing work in terms of how do we design conservation incentives and, and mechanisms and programs for farmers. But then at the same time, how do we provide space for the multiple forms of knowledge in, in knowledge building in terms of indigenous forms of agriculture and, and cosmology, as well as scientific forms. And, and also, um, one of the cool things that I found there too is realizing how much overlap there actually is between what we talk about. We, we may draw lines between indigenous and scientific forms of knowledge, but how they can they can come together in really unique ways, especially in the same person. Um, you know, it, It's something that struck me that we don't often think or hear about a term that's like the indigenous scientist. And that, that struck me as something weird, right? Because these are, these are the kinds of people that we would see. They're also the ones making business decisions. They're also the one making um, production decisions for, for quinoa and where to sell it and how to come up with business ideas. So business started filtering into my thinking process um, in fieldwork. And, uh, and I got really excited about how do we think about markets and international you know, movements of goods and things like that. And and so then as I kind of moved from school and and moving towards um, coming out of PhD, I uh, you know have done a number of years of teaching, you know, adjunct professor in different areas. But one of the things I found was that I was I, I always would do my best kind of teaching, or I felt I felt most alive when I was 
in not straight up anthropology departments, for, for lack of a better term. So teaching in a design program or an engineering school, for example, uh, or a business program. And this, uh, I, I kind of stumbled into these other ways of, of or other areas of, of where an anthropologist could teach. Uh, you know, a bit by accident, but a bit by just um, from the design angle, uh, you know, spending time hanging out with like UX and, and design um, collectives and um, like meetup groups, for example, in Boston, um, as I was interested in what that scene was like, as I was kind of finishing school, figuring out what what might I do for my, my work and my career moving forward, um, because I didn't want to go into academia. And, and so design gave me one kind of area and then, uh, but I, you know, did it slowly instead of like jumping over to a, to a UX or a design job, I ended up teaching in a design program, you know, as, as an anthropologist. And so, uh, I got kind of a soft launch, I guess, as it were into the business world, uh, in that regard. And, but then it also kind of cemented that, that I love teaching and education is, is always part of how I think about my work. And, and I'll talk about that and how that relates to motive base that I do today. Um, but at the same time, uh, thinking about there's a lot of interesting ways that we can can approach and solve problems thinking in these hybrid areas in terms of like anthropology may not be the most um or might not be the foremost thing that comes to somebody's mind for example um so a, a bit of kind of back and forth there in terms of of what that has meant for me in terms of the, through school into the business part and then um you know the parallel track with that is during phd um as folks may know too that i started doing this anthro life you know like my second year of, or, you know, of PhD. Uh, now eight years old as of yesterday. 11 years old. <laughs> yeah. So you know, congrats. Um, yes. Yes. Yeah. We just turned eight. That's, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is crazy to think about too, you know, uh, that that's a long time to make a, to make mm -hmm. a podcast. Um, it's like, I should have my, you know, my, my third album out by this point, but I, I don't quite, <laughs> you know, um, you know, but that other side of it too was, was the kind of the other part where I was, uh, you know, we anthropology, I think collects and tells some of the most interesting stories in the world. You know, we, we study with all kinds of people in all kinds of places and, and look at some of the craziest, craziest things on the planet. Um, you know, from, from quinoa conservation to wall street, you know, and just mm -hmm. see like what's happening in, in, in so many areas. And, um, so many of those stories have trouble getting out into, into, uh, you know, uh, to wider publics, which is a term I just critiqued in my last episode. Um, you know, in, in terms of the vague idea of where else are these episodes going. And so, um, you know, I, I really was trying to, you know, think through how do we do that? And so for me, podcasting or having conversations was, was one way that we might play with, uh, you know, how anthropology gets shared and, uh, you know, the, on one of those, like the rest is history kind of thing we can break down if we want at any point, but just like I, I fell in love with the medium and doing that kind of work. And that fundamentally shifted also how I think about anthropology in that, um, you know, on one level, I'd say I'm a crappy scholar because I, um, you know, I, I mean, I got a degree, but I am not like a hardcore researcher um, in an academic sense. And, you know, podcasting to me gave me this way of being able to do research and to think about how do we disseminate knowledge in new ways and, and also bring new people into the conversation, literally. Um, but, you know, have have some of the trappings of the deep research of, of academic anthropology, but have the accessibility of something you might find in NPR. And so I still haven't totally cracked that nut, but that's that's kind of the goal is to put those, those two elements together. And, um, you know, so part of it is how do we think about communicating and telling the stories that anthropology um, puts out in the world? And then the other side is, you know, this, this um, you know, track of going from academic anthropology and, and education into teaching, into design, and then then finally actually in, into business itself. So that's a lot to start with, but um, those are kind of the back. two yeah. the two parallel tracks. Yeah, thanks for sharing. So um, let's go kind of way back to the beginning. You know what? You know, obviously we know each other a bit, and so I've heard some of these things, but probably not everything still. And um, I guess one of the questions I have, you know, you talk about the work in Peru as being interventionist, but hmm. I guess there's the question of, you know, did you go down there with that intention or did you sort of discover the need to be interventionist while there? Yeah, that, that's a good question. So when I was beginning to, when I was proposing the research, you know, so with my dissertation committee and, and department and figuring out what I was going to do for research, the, the way I proposed it at the time is, uh, as kind of applied research. And so I found the NGO that I worked with for, for the, for my dissertation research by accident, uh, as I was, I was doing research in terms of what 
quinoa markets in terms of what how, how are people thinking about quinoa and biodiversity. And so I found this NGO by accident, and, and, and I was like, wow, this is great. They're working on this project. So then I reached out to them and just said, hey, I'm I'm an anthropologist. You know, I'm going to go do research. Um, I'd love to talk with you. And then they just said, hey, actually, man, we need some help doing some programs. Would you like to help us run them? And I was like, yeah. And so to them, free labor. To me, I got a, I got a dissertation partner. You know, so there's a, a mutual benefit there. Mm-hmm. And so that, um, you know, basically kind of pushed into my head more concretely that an applied approach is something that I'm interested in doing with work. You know, I had, I was, I was leaning towards this idea. I didn't want to just do a pure academic research project because I was uncomfortable with the idea of going there, doing research, extracting, and leaving. Um, you know, and. And so applied felt right or felt better. And so finding an NGO gave me a partner to work with. And so what's interesting is that, so, so I went to the field thinking about doing applied anthropology, meaning how do I help a community uh, solve a problem um, kind of on their terms. And as I started working with the NGO, it then became apparent I was doing interventionist work. I was going there to actually change these people's lives by designing programs to help them actually make market decisions that would actually affect the way and change how they're doing agriculture Mm-hmm. Um, and, and making decisions. And so uh, the, the thing is, I actually wrestled with that for a little while because I didn't yet have the vocabulary. So interventionist is what I say now. Um, but so in Peru, in, I was living in Lima at the time um, in, the, in the city to start. And while I was in this time getting to know the NGO and I was working also with the Peruvian Ministry of the Environment who has partnered with this NGO. So I was working at very high level organizations. Um, and, you know, cultural anthropology graduate programs like really hammer into like, you need to work with the people, air quotes, right? And like, it didn't feel like the government was the people, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, and so there's something about, well, where's the, where's the farmers, you know? And I, I was struggling with this idea of like, what does it mean to work at these levels? And I, I don't even get to the farmers yet. Um, and so part of this was, I'm like looking at these and working with these organizations of like designing intervention ideas abstractly. And then we're going to go to Puno, which is in South Peru to then start talking with farmers and think about how do we put the programs together. And so in this time of being in Lima and working with these like higher level organizations, I was just digging around like one does, um, you know, on, I don't know, Anthro Journal websites and I don't even remember where. And then I found design anthropology. I'd not heard of it until I went to the field. Um, and then I saw like Tan Otto and, and Rachel Smith and, the, and these scholars that had written design anthropology theory and practice, Wendy Gunn's book, um, and a bunch of other of those like readers, um, design anthropological futures, I think had, had, was either coming out or just come out. And then I was like, oh man, this, this, okay, this is describing what I'm, what I'm trying to figure out, you know, interventionist work. It's going in there and like designing with and for people that feels better than just going there and saying, Hey, the government has an idea for a program, <laughs> you know? So it gave me a bit of a moral compass in terms of how do we, how do we think about anthropology in, a, in an active sense? And I, and I liked, and, and I, I, I guess I aligned with this idea of, of design anthropology and interventionist work a little bit more than applied. Like not, I don't need to draw a super strict definition or line there, but um, it, it seemed like the point of design anthropology was to design with, for, and alongside others in that um, that resonated and felt right to me. And also, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess a bit in a theoretical perspective, it was a bit more fresh to build on because I have to write a dissertation too. So that gave me a little bit more fodder to think with, I guess. And so. Um, yeah, I, I guess that's part of it. So no, I didn't go into the field thinking about the uh, interventionist work, and it kind of happened. And then I then I actually found the vocabulary because it was kind of already happening, if, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Which is a weird thing. It is interesting, though, that you know, I guess it's a somewhat of a testament to Brandeis that they even really um, supported an applied, hmm. you know, proposal. Um, yeah, you know, I talked to now. You know, many people who, when they speak about their programs, maybe, you know, maybe online, maybe offline, but nonetheless, when, you know, when speaking about them, that they're often, you know, the exact opposite of that, uh, you know, when it's like a traditional, more traditional program. And, um, and so that's pretty cool. And I also did see that actually that Brandeis recently, there was just that post yesterday that they're trying to do a little bit more, have a little bit more focus on preparing for jobs. So, I mean, that, that seems like, you know, a feather in their cap, but, um, nonetheless, so you go down there, you have this applied, project in mind, it sort of takes on a little bit new form, becomes a little bit more interventionist as you learn of the design anthropology literature. And, um, you know, that is somewhat around how we meet really to sort mm-hmm. of tie a few things together. You know, you were doing an episode or a few episodes where design anthropology was, you know, was being dropped on TL. And so we connected kind of around that. And really that that's kind of like the shared interest that somewhat brought us together. Um, 
But at that time, we were also talking about public anthropology, which of course yep. shows its face in TAL and other such things that you've done since. Um, and you know, you 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 pointed out uh, at the start of the podcast about the episodes that I'm creating. But of course, you know, my podcast, Gabby's podcast, many of us obviously took influence from TAL uh, and are, of course, likewise appreciative of that. I mean, you really kind of started it in the anthropology space, and so what made you? get, you know, interested in, um, I mean, I know you said, you, you know, the sort of perspective of education, but what really got you interested in more so in like the public anthropology perspective? Uh, yeah. Like that, that's a good, that's a good question. Like why would we care about wider publics knowing about anthropology or like a public approach? Um, you know, so, so public anthropology as a framework or something that stood out, like came earlier, you know, so like, cause, cause TAL, I started, um, you know, again, really early on in, in PhD. And so, um, you know, I, th I think it was just, even as we got started, there was just something about the idea of, of, um, I mean, like the, the urban legend story is that, you know, me, me and Ryan Collins, my, my colleague, you know, we would, uh, be at the bar after class, like one does and discussing, you know, I don't know, something about Marxian theory that we're like, you know, labor theory of value is really interesting for X, Y, and Z reasons. And every once in a while, um, we'd say something that was like, you know, man, that's actually pretty good. We should, uh, we should write that down. Um, uh, and then we got lazy and thought about what if we recorded it and, and, you know, and so part of it was just thinking about this, this idea of, of, um, there's these, these great insights that if, you know, if you and your friend can discuss them and obviously we're classmates, so it was, it was very still like academic-y sounding, mm -hmm. um, what would it look like if, if we tried to like expand that further? So we talked to a third colleague, Anil Tripathi, um, and he had access to the Brandis radio station. And so we just like, okay, well, let's get together and talk once a week and see what we can do. Um, and so, so part of it was this, this idea that I hadn't realized it was actually so easy to, um, you know, one, just start talking. Uh, and the, for, for me, again, the conversation was kind of the way that I, I was drawn to this idea of like, you know, how do we, how can we talk about these ideas in a more accessible way? And um, because I, you know, believed that we were learning so many interesting and, and fun things every week in classes and just this such, such like, I don't know, mind-blowing theoretical idea or just a really cool example from Papua New Guinea of, of how we think about time differently that just would like totally fundamentally shift our nine to five thinking in the US or something, you know? And so um, there's so much kind of coming at me so quickly that part of it was like, I just wanted, I was like a five-year-old that wanted to share it with everybody, <laughs> you know? Um, and, and then I was frustrated that we we couldn't. And then I was like, you know, where are these conversations? Where else is this happening in, way, in, in ways that, that people can can find it? And there wasn't. Um, I mean, the other part of it too is I'm, I'm actually a very slow reader, which is uh, annoying to me, but it's worse in graduate school because you have to read 300 pages a week. And that's like, it added stress on top of a stressful experience. And so one of my outlets was to be able to talk through the things I was, I was digesting. Mm -hmm. And I realized like these, this little alchemy of these things started working for me where it's like, okay, this is actually a great way to, to get out some of the ideas that I, I think that would actually help us think better, us in a broad sense. Um, and then also I can process some of the things that I'm learning and then do it in a way that's fun with my colleagues. And so, um, you know, and a radio show just seemed cool, <laughs> you know? And so like part of it was, was these elements. And so then and I realized too, that, that, that the idea of in finding a commitment towards making these ideas more accessible really resonated and it, it kind of sat with me. I said, this feels right. This feels better uh, than again, just taking the knowledge internally and then and turning it around back for ourselves, again, being academic anthropologists as the audience. And so, um, you know, because this is me looking back on this now, but like uh, the way I think about this too, is like, again, it was just, it became this question of audience also. And like, so me, public anthropology, I was interested in the audience of, of the public in essence, in terms of who else needs to hear these stories. Anthropologists can already hear them. And I don't think we tell them very well, uh, you know, in, in academic literature and journals and, and ethnographies, because it's, you know, it's complex, difficult language. Uh, and so, you know, it became this question of, of what does it mean to, to think about these being more accessible forms of knowledge and conversation and then having a conversation with someone. And so it slowly started, you know, building and then looking at what else has been done around public anthropology and, and what has like, uh, what kind of quote unquote popular forms of anthropology were out there. And at the time, Savage Minds was probably the biggest blog, mm. um, you know, now called Anthrodendum. And Jason Antrosio had his Living Anthropologically blog also. 
And uh, that, I think it started like a year before we started doing TAL. And, and so that was basically like also a kind of repository. And, and um, you know, Jason's really big on showing his syllabi and classes and collecting materials from the, the community in terms of how to make learning and teaching more accessible. And Savage Minds, um, you know, Anthrodendum is always been kind of a guest post blog in terms of people coming in there and sharing information and stories and kind of writing back and forth. Um, you know, in, in, but neither of them were a super conversational or fundamentally, in my opinion, pointed towards just a generalized group of people. Like, you know, I wouldn't necessarily see them on NPR or, or, um, on in Red Book, for example, and so um, that's not to dig on them at all because I understand sure. like the, the step that they're they're taking and they've done like incredible work in terms of setting that precedent. Um, and just for me, like the format of conversation was like it, it's just a bit of how I think. You know, I, I guess I, I talk to things sometimes, and um, it resonated. And so I don't know. It's a part of it. Like it's it's a bit of a gravity thing. You know, it's like it kind of starts and keeps going, and 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 there's something about like making myself have a weekly episode set and having to think through a topic. And I really enjoyed the quickness of the research um, and the, the ability, how do we turn it around into something that we can talk about? Um, and it was fresh in a way that didn't require, you know, six hours of, of digging around per book and footnotes and citations and MLA and whatever, you know, format, um, you know, and, and so the criteria was, was different, I think. And so uh, a lot of that, got me thinking about, you know, what does it mean to make this information publicly accessible? And, and, um, I don't know. And that just stuck. I mean, that, that's what anthropology needs to do, I think, you know, and I still believe mm -hmm. that, you know, I mean, here we are, <laughs> yeah, but, um, sure. you know, uh, so, so I, I don't know. It's interesting. Cause it's, it's, it's the idea. One thing that really, that, that jumped out to me across the years is I've talked to a bunch of the, um, you know, writers from Savage Minds and, and folks that have done public, you know, facing kind of anthropology things, folks that have written about public anthropology and, I was always kind of struck. This may have been like youthful hubris, you know, but like I was always kind of struck that they, they oftentimes I'd get a bit of dismissiveness from them in terms of like, well, I've already written about that. Or I, I you know, I've, I've been doing stuff about that for 10 years and nobody listens anyway. And so, um, and I respect that. I respect that. Like that's, that's the perspective that they've had in, 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 you know, think about what does that mean? You know, what would it feel like to say, I'm trying to do public anthropology, but nobody's listening. And so I took that to heart um, and, and not because, again, I think that they were wrong or they did the wrong approach, but it does tell me that there's something about the medium and how we're communicating to others that public anthropology doesn't matter if you don't actually think about who the public is. Um, and so what I alluded to a little bit ago in terms of the the episode I just released as, as, as of this recording was just reflecting on, on this Anthrolife's eighth birthday. And, um, you know, the, the public anthropology angle that has always uh, like that I've come to understand more of is that, and I think this is why we're seeing such a challenge with having anthropology be out in, in part of um, broader audiences. And I'll include business in this too, which we, we can jump to in a minute. I know I'm talking a lot. Um, is, is this idea that like, we have to actually define our audiences. Like we can't just say, I want to do public anthropology because that doesn't mean anything. I mean, national public radio sounds like the same thing, but they know who their audience is. They do audience research. And this is something I didn't know as an anthropologist. And, you know, I've later now come to understand, and, and I have done this for this anthro life and for other projects. And there's a concreteness that comes to, to understanding who you're, who you're designing your work for um, and, and how you're helping them solve problems. And so um, anyway, I don't know. So that, there's, there's something about that. Like it's, it's kind of an always shifting target, but um, you know, the, the shifting has become way more specific. Like now, it, now it's, I know who I'm targeting and another name and what they're looking for, if, if that makes sense. And so there's something about that. And even actually, I mean, you helped us with TAL back in the day, start thinking about this. You know, you, you kind of brought some UX thinking. Um, I think you helped us do our first audience survey, actually, <laughs> you know? So um, it took me a long time to digest and understand that. So, so you know, I'm just a slow learner, I guess. Well, we all are in our own ways. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, in the podcasting space, I was quite late to the game, but it is an impactful medium, you know, which is why I've jumped in. And it is helping to get the word out in a way that, it seemed as if text wasn't doing, and it sounds like the people you've talked to maybe are are um, supporting that even begrudgingly, maybe. But um, you know what I before we move on to business, what I'd be curious to know. Obviously, you were adjuncting. You know, we we were at conferences, so we're you know we're interacting still with academia, right? We have kind of mm. we have like a you know one toe still in there to some degree, <laughs> yeah. right? And. Um, you know, have you been having any conversations about how academia is starting to perceive 
podcasting because I'm I have not, so I don't know what that is, what how they feel about it. But it seems as if there are people out there who are waking up to the idea that you know there needs to be some new mediums and some new ways of doing things. I mean, it's slow. It's it's this is not a tidal wave coming across academia by any means, but yeah. it does seem that there is in you know there there are certainly more podcasts than when you started by you know even just in the anthropology space yeah. there are many more. Uh, and it seems like you know other people are starting to appreciate you know South by Southwest, which you're going to be at, and we'll talk about uh, you know TED, you know all these sort of other opportunities, all these other venues. Um, so have you you know have you heard anything? And, and let me just also say that the reason I'm asking is is it's like I guess there's a question like should this even be considered as something valuable on a CV, which I think it should, mm-hmm. right? But you know is it equivalent to a journal article at some point in the future or? Maybe not equivalent, but somehow, you know, valued. Yeah. You know, any thoughts on that? Anything you've heard? Um, yeah, that, that's a good set of questions, and I I, I like this line of thinking. Um, so the short answer is, I'm also an n sample size of one, but like I I don't know of many academic programs that are that are changing their tune in terms of what counts for tenure. Um, I know that the conversations are happening. And how podcasting fits into that, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not super privy to it. But I mean, a couple of things I, I can say that I think are that give me hope is that um, one, I agree with you that like we need to change like the 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 metrics by which we um, measure and value accomplished academic work. You know, and so podcasting, for example, being a medium. I mean, yeah, I would just I, if I could just jump in, right? Yeah. I mean, like things like citations versus listeners. Okay, yeah. so you have X amount of like. Double digit citations or even hundreds. Well, if you have thirty thousand listeners, I mean, yeah, you know what I mean. I know, yeah, right. <laughs> there is, there is, there, this is, this is the, exactly right. I mean, it's like okay, if you've had four hundred thousand people listen to your show, and like, does that not count for something? You know, right. yeah. um, I mean, I think it's like I remember too, like years ago that we, um, you know, my 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 um, original co-host Ryan and Neil and I, we were kicking around the idea of like what would it take to have like a peer reviewed podcast. You know, um, and and I don't see why you couldn't do that. I mean, it's just like you know, why not talk through your sources and like you know, if you have people that say, okay, let me let me look at it and make sure that we're fact checking it, and then you have to change it otherwise. So I think you like fundamentally could. I think one of the challenges with doing that is that um, it would need to be a, a more produced show, which is not sure, yeah. you know a challenge, but just like you have to have segments and parts and like be able to swap things out. You know, it couldn't just be a straight conversation unless you're just like a super badass that can just like say everything and all, all the citations, you know. Um, you know, and so I think part of it would be that. And I think that as you know too, that the barrier to entry to making this media isn't super high, but um, you know, even just making a conversational show that we're doing right here still takes a ton of time afterwards, like for production and pre and pre-planning scheduling, all this stuff takes a ton of time. So um, it's like, it's one of those people get excited about it and then say, oh, wait, this is actually a huge amount of work to make one episode, let alone a series. Um, so hats off to anybody that makes these because they are a lot harder. And so part of it that's made me feel good is academics when they realize actually this is not, you don't just, oh, podcast done, right? When they realize it actually is a production set of, of work because that then shows and like to me that I'm finding when, when they do that, then they are saying, okay, now I see. I'm already starting to value the labor differently, right? That goes into making this. It isn't just some like, well, there's just two people talking. It's like, it's not that, you know? I mean, it is that, but it's not just that. And so part of it is, I think, clarifying what labor it is to make this kind of production too. And and like, not to just prize writing as something that that's that's the only way. Um, other things I've seen, like, and this is this is also Brandeis's case and, and also working with me. So, um, we can take that for what it is, but um, what's been really, really cool since I finished, um, I finished a uh, PhD in 2018. Since then, um, I have done multiple things with Brandeis. I mean, other schools too, but Brandeis has some of the best examples in terms of that. I have, um, you know, in the fall of 2020, I ran a uh, internship program with Brandeis on podcasting, and so I had five interns from from across the graduate school, so folks that were in humanities and social sciences. Um, we did interns, uh, internships on like media production and making, we worked on this Anthrolife and, and, um, uh, my colleague, Elizabeth Ferry's, um, podcast for called this book. And so we kind of split the interns. I did training sessions with everybody every, every few weeks and, um, you know, did podcast marketing, did podcast development, did 
um, how to tell stories. And so that was actually really cool. And this was like, they got class credit for it. Um, and I got to have interns for, for, a you know, for a semester. So super cool trade-off. And so that was, that's, so also saying this, like, so if universities or schools are listening, this, this kind of work exists, it just takes Matt or myself or someone talk to one of us. And this is the kind of stuff we can do with you. Um, and it's, it's a great way to both help show the kind of work that, that is necessary and possible to do this. And then also, um, you're doing it in a, I don't, for lack of a better term, a supervised academic context. And so you have some control over what's being made and how it's being made. And so if the kind of content makes a difference, then that's, that's one way that you could, you could push towards it. So, um, I hope to see more. I know like SFAA has their podcast project, for example, Society mm-hmm. for Applied Anthropology. Um, you know, but it's like interesting because even Epic, the you know ethnographic practice and industry or, or AAA um, American Anthropological Association, you know, they have their podcast network. Epic does video series. Um, but, you know, it's like we don't see that many podcasts from universities or podcasts from these organizations themselves. You know, that's something that I've, I've, I lightly pursued for a few years with all these different organizations, um, you know, and it's, you know, they, um, for one reason or never, never really took, and that's fine. But it is a question too of like, why are we always, you know, the podcasters all tend to be independent. And so that's, that's just mm-hmm. a question we should ask ourselves too, in terms of where might support come from? What, what might it look like? What does it mean to show universities what the value of doing this kind of work is, you know, both for a CV, but then also, you know, if, if you want to get your name out there as a scholar or the, or the university wants to get their name out there, um, what could it look like, you know? And so, sure. um, the only other example I can think of right now is like Harvard Business School and their HBR podcast they started doing, you know? So it's like business schools are doing it more. So the question is, why aren't social sciences? Yeah. Well, business schools do a lot of things that anthropologists are, or at least practicing <laughs> yes, anthropologists might, might be doing. But um, so to your last point, though, it's, it's, a, it's a good jumping off point um, because you, in many ways, were using it to generate business, both mm-hmm. as a founder of of Missing Link Studios, co-founder, I should say, right, with uh, with Astrid, I think. And mm-hmm. um, so using it for your own entrepreneurship, but also eventually it really did turn into, my understanding, right, is, is yep. your now full-time gig. And that's pretty amazing, right? I mean, you're basically using this medium to essentially do, you know, to kind of develop, conduct business, maybe not conduct, but to, you know, for business development purposes in some yeah. sense. And, you know, through Missing Link and kind of storytelling, really selling a lot of the, the same kind of services, if you will, right? Yep. You know, sort of like taking it and packaging what you've learned from podcasting and selling it. So it has had a real practical application in your life and now a really long lasting sort of impact, um, charting you kind of on this new path that you're you're, yep. you're in with MotivBase. So, um, you know, it's, it's not... This is not, you know, it's not just some sort of emerging medium that, you know, it has no value. I mean, this is, this has really shaped your life and it's, um, you know, it's also an opportunity to network and meet people. You know, that's one of the most interesting things I found about it through COVID. And, you know, I started mine during COVID for that being one of the reasons. I mean, it, it of course, gives back. It, it, you know, I'm very career oriented, right? So it kind of gives back in that sense, but it's also an opportunity to like meet and see people when we weren't going to see them otherwise. Um, which if you recall, is almost one of the reasons I reached out to you being in an online program, I was never seeing students. So totally, yeah. you know, it, it was just an opportunity to kind of connect with people. And so that thread keeps coming back for me and it's now happened for you. And so it has, you know, podcasting has had a lot of value. And so you may want to maybe just talk about, you know, briefly kind of what you did, you know, with missing link, and then we'll kind of get into, you know, motivase. Yeah, sure. It's a hard word to say. Motive base. Motive base. It, it is. I know it's just, maybe I'm, I'm used to saying it now, I think, but yes, it does. Um, it's actually like, my name is hard to say, Adam Gamwell, because there's two M's right next to each other. So it's like motive base is also kind of like, you want to just mumble it out a little bit. Um, you know, so yeah. So um, so Missing Link Studios, you know, so yeah, I founded that, co-founded that with my colleague Astrid County. And the reason that we we started putting that together was like after um, school ended for me and, and I was doing some adjuncting, but I wanted to move more into the business world. And so her and I put our heads together in terms of how do we find clients? What, what can we offer? We're both anthropologists. She's a tech anthropologist. I was a design anthropologist. What can we kind of put together? And so one of the areas that we found was interesting that was kind of in between that and also with podcasting was this idea of, of storytelling, um, you know, as uh, an SA, storytelling as a service, right? <laughs> um, you know, but just this idea in terms of like, how can we help organizations or individuals, um, you know, 
both define and articulate their stories and what, what matters to them, what, what their, their values are and what they want to put out in the world. And um, it's funny, that was the goal. We ended up actually just doing a lot of web design and, and, and design design stuff because that was a quicker way, an easier way to find, to find client work. But then, you know, that helped me think through what would people think is a worthy story to tell. And, um, you know, so part of it was, was this kind of work in terms of going through and, and, you know, doing client work. And then eventually it began to morph into what we might call more quote traditional research, where I would go do a client engagement and, and do like a series of interviews and then come back to some analysis on what we're finding. And then, you know, either write up a report on, on, you know, CEO perceptions of change during COVID or on helping a mental health organization um, redesign their on their in-person curriculum to work online because of COVID. Uh, and so different kind of projects like that, that, um, that I, I very much enjoyed, you know, in, in this kind of work. Um, and then, uh, like your, yourself noted too, in terms of like kicking off podcasting during COVID, I was, I was actually on a client engagement in Canada as COVID began to become a thing in the Western world. And we were halfway done with it and they, uh, called us up and they're like, you have to go home now. We're closing the country. I was like, oh, okay. Um, so like change plans, go back to Toronto, fly back to Boston. That's it, <laughs> you know? And um, so we ended up finishing the project remotely online. But mm-hmm. um, like yourself too, I was I was grounded in a way that I hadn't been before. And uh, that that made it difficult to figure out what would happen next, you know? So like yourself, having podcasting as a, as a, a medium that I was doing in person, but now obviously needs to be much more remote, um, continued to matter. And, and, and so that became a more important kind of lifeline almost for business, for networking, for, for some of the similar reasons. And, um, yeah, I mean, uh, part of it was that, you know, doing research for, for, um, folks to, to interview for the show and seeing what else is out there. I, I came across motive base on, on LinkedIn and, um, saw that they had an AI anthropologist and I was just like, what the hell is that? <laughs> you know, that sounds cool. And so, Right about the company. This sounds super. This sounds amazing. This is such an interesting idea of using using software and, and big data and, and quantum qual together in this really unique way. Uh, and so then I reached out to the the CEO to invite him to be on the podcast. And then, to my surprise, he came back and said, "Dude, I love your show. I've been listening to it for years." Um, and I was like, "Oh, <laughs> cool." You know, that's great. And and um, so then we we got to talking, you know, and did a pre interview. And then he was just like, you know, really what we need is. Uh, a lot of this work is like we need researchers that that are willing to have like an academic mindset, but are willing to kind of do work in industry, um, and and help with market research and like but bring the anthropological and, and knowledge of culture. Um, we need that, but we also need is people that know how to communicate that. That's actually one of the hardest things um, to find social scientists that can actually like translate and like broker the the insights that we find. And so he goes, I mean, you obviously you can do this with this this cast. I mean, would you be interested? And I was like, yes. <laughs> Um, the timing, the timing was good. You know, it's like I had, I had COVID was there. I had, I had, uh, work dried up because of COVID. And so, um, the challenge sounded interesting. And so, yeah, so I've been there, I've been there now for, um, you know, a bit over a year and a half. Um, and it's been, been super interesting, super fun. And I've, I've kind of moved. I began as a researcher at motive base. Um, and then now I, I'm, you know, a, a very cool sounding job title, the senior anthropologist. And I work primarily on the, the, basically the client success side of, of stuff where we, Briefing projects, deliver them with clients, and then kind of go through. And I do a lot of working sessions. So I can I can talk about that stuff if you'd like to. But um, it's been an interesting journey. So I mean, podcasting literally got me a job. So kids, remember, podcasting is cool, um, and it has value, and and like that counts for the CV in this case, you know. Um, but yeah, so, so it's it's been kind of a mix a mix of that in terms of um, you know from storytelling as 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 a service, for lack of a better term, um, into research and then into continuing to use podcasting as a, as a tool for networking, communicating, and then um, finding my way into the, the work I do now. Yeah, that's great. And um, so to focus on what you're doing now, you know, AI anthropology sounds super cool, right? But AI kind of gets tossed around very yeah. loosely. So can you talk about like what you guys are actually doing? Like, how are you really combining those? Yeah, sure. Um, no, it's a, it's a good question, right? Uh, and so basically what we, we do is we... Um, we, you know, collect conversational data month over month. And so in this case, anywhere that consumers are having long form conversations, we kind of have two major criteria for collecting data. One is anywhere that that they're having long form conversation, which could be like Reddit or Quora, or if we're sharing a news article and commenting on it, for example, or or YouTube comments. 
Um, the flip side is we don't do social media listening. So this is not a social media listening platform. So we don't use mm -hmm. Facebook or Twitter or, or data sources like that. And the second criteria is that if we have any uh, pseudonymity or anonymity from users so that we don't have their real names. Um, this is important both for GDPR compliance, but then on top of that, it's important for um, if you have ever been on social media or just seen someone on Reddit, you can tell who's being a bit more honest. It's often when your name is not attached or your picture is attached to what you're saying. And that makes a difference. <laughs> so um, so basically what we, we do with MotiveBase is that we we do observational ethnography using using conversational data online. And the, the kind of platform that we've built is what we call contextual intelligence. And so if you and I are having a conversation about gut health, let's say, and, and I'm like, oh, gut health is important. And you're like, yeah, probiotics are, are a neat idea. And then I say, yeah, um, but I'm not really sure about lactobacillus. And then we, we're kind of going back and forth. And, and you and I know we're talking about gut health. Um, traditional Boolean keyword searches can't see that. These are connected ideas. They just know, like, if you typed gut health, it'll show you the website where this conversation took place. But it has no idea that this is actually part of the, the that we're talking in context. Mm -hmm. And so um, kind of the platform is able to then look at uh, the wider context of a conversation and understand um, what we're talking about as people. And so if you do that and you aggregate that over, over big data sets of scraping millions of data points every month, and then look at that over time, you're able to get a sense in terms of size of, of how many people are talking about a certain topic, um, get ideas in terms of what are the associations and the context around which um, topics people are talking about. And so you kind of get a, a bit of an inside window um, from a big data scale in terms of uh, you know what are the associations that, that consumers have about whatever topic they're talking about, um, what's it look like? And then, um, so that's kind of the big data collection part. And then we as anthropologists do the interpretive qualitative research on top of that in terms of understanding and interpreting what it is that we're seeing. Um, the system is very good at pulling things together, but it's still, you know, AI to your point is it can do a lot of things in terms of reacting or like, you know, triggering something and it'll then collect data, but it doesn't interpret anything, you know, AI, and AI is nowhere near that. Um, yeah. And so, Basically, so it still takes humans to kind of think through what's happening in that in that data and, and kind of think about that. And so, um, so we do basically client based work. We you know we work with a lot of Fortune 500 companies in terms of doing market research. You know what's happening in the culture of gut health, for example, or mm -hmm. um, where is um, I don't know where is <laughs> where is fandom going, and um, you know so basically anything that 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 they want to look at. And so um, you know by blending these two different elements together, we can do kind of five-day research sprints that get a pretty solid amount of ethnographic detail, um, you know, by combining the big data sets and um, some of our interpreter, interpretive tools in essence. So it's a super interesting process. Yeah, sure. Um, and is it mostly like natural language understanding based or is it using knowledge graphs? And Yeah. So it's, it's, I mean, it's like a lot of it is, is NLP and yeah, natural language processing um, and understanding that side of it and then mixing a few other things. Looking at like semantic distance and seeing like how frequently words and topics are mentioned near each other or further away. Um, and so that we, we graph some of that, like we do have a, the backend helps us visualize and graph like distances and things like that. So we can see and get a sense of where and when things were talked about um, in relationship to each other. So I can see how business would be interested in that, right? There's obviously, right, there's, there's always sort of a quantification type bias and to yeah, some degree, yes. even just, you know, visualizing anything helps kind of move us in the direction of the world that business likes. Mm -hmm. um, so I can certainly see, you know, the value of that, but then you still have to do the analysis and you still have to sell, you know, the insights, which brings yeah. us back to storytelling and not everybody does well. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's always one of those things that just keeps coming up and up and, you know, on the podcast always that it's like, you know, everybody, I may, maybe I shouldn't say that everybody is shocked by it, but everybody seems to mention that they spend a lot of their time consistently reminding, you know, coworkers of the insights and having to always kind of really work hard to get in front of them and get some time to to share. Yeah. Um, and that becomes a big part of the job really, right? That to the point where research is often a smaller portion of the job. Mm -hmm. And um, but still, I mean, you could spend your time doing that and not necessarily do it well, right? You yeah. could you can make time for it to happen, but communicating it is a second part to that, which yeah, takes skill. And so have you learned anything, you know, between TAL, missing, you know, missing link, the, you know, the role now that you're finding has been particularly helpful for you to communicate the value of, you know, what you're doing as an anthropologist? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, you know, I mean, one of the main things is, is as best you can 
um, even what I mentioned before is is know your audience in terms of what are you what are they looking for, um, and as best you can know like where are they coming from, and so you know even if you have the same story to tell three different people, you might tell that same story three different ways, right? Depending on where they're coming from, and so you know, and I I'd certainly find like in a market research context, you know, a lot of our clients are are research firms in another company, right? Um, you know, or they're the research branch of of a, of a CPG, a consumer packaged goods company, for example. And so, um, they may have some background in research, you know, but oft- oftentimes it's not anthropology; it's you know, behavioral sciences or or economics, even right, or you know, what we'd say the more distant social sciences, um, you know, and and that's fine. So so part of it too is just getting a sense of when possible where they're coming from, what their needs are, you know, and then uh, thinking about. If we you now we still do a lot of work internally with our with our teams to go from the research to the insights to then distilling them to something that we can say quickly. Um, and uh, you probably find this too. Whenever, even if you uh, you know given a presentation to a client and you have I don't know four bullet points on a slide, they're like, "This is too long," and you're like, "I don't know, I don't know how to make this shorter." Uh, besides, here's just a picture of a duck, you know. Uh, and so there, there's always this challenge too. So it's like, how do I? How can I say what needs to be said? And so, um, honestly, like both knowing your audience when you can, and like I know that that's a challenge because if you see a client once every once in a while, that that's a mm-hmm. bit trickier of a thing. But then thinking th- think through your patterns, like what do you see your clients saying over time, you know? And like you know, they're different people. Like what is the kind of clientness that is that is part of how they ask you your questions? And so for me, for example, like. You know, we a lot of this work is doing like how do we promote a cultural mindset? How do we think about culture as a thing that is fundamental to behavior? And so we want to understand behavior, but behavior only makes sense because culture says it makes sense, right? And so, you know, for example, so the, I think about that because that that's often one of the like things we talk about all the time. Um, and so, if I'm thinking, that, if I'm always hitting this problem, then how do I say this? And so even even today, actually, I was thinking about this in terms of it's like we say culture be, be culture changes quickly. I mean, sorry, behavior changes quickly, but culture changes slowly. And so, how do we think about that in time scale? So, if I want to know what's the drivers of behavior, why they're doing that, that's fine. Let me give you the culture, and then it's going to make sense of why that behavior would even change in the first place or not. And so, a lot of it is kind of going through this and, and just thinking about what am I trying to share, and where are they coming from? Coming from behavior, we want to get culture across. How do we think about that for a question of time scale, which has to do with the way we collect our data, um, or other kinds of other pieces like that? So. Um, I don't know. It, it's it's an always a learning process, and you are right that it, it's it's both a skill and, and one that hey, I would love to see schools teach, but then also businesses, you know, kind of kind of teach too in terms of like this is how we can um, tell stories better. But I don't. But it, it is it is an ongoing challenge. Hmm. You know, another challenge must be. I mean, you said you're doing sprints, and you said five day sprints. So yep. I mean, that's a tight time box, and presumably you are scraping. You know, a fair amount of data that then you're going through as a human, which you know is labor intensive, and though the tools can probably you know help make that a little easier, right? There's still an effort there. Yeah. So, you know, without getting into like you know anything too specific about the organization, you know, what are you sort of doing to kind of really like you know keep up with that pace, right? Because that's tough. I mean, anybody listening from academia is going to be horrified right now. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. Talking big data and we're talking five days, <laughs> Yes, right. which and means using, like two days like or a day to do analysis. <laughs> yes. I know, right. And using AI to collect data too. Um, yes. It's, it's a great point. Yeah. Um, yeah. There is the cadence is is definitely, it's fast, right? And, um, you know, for us, I mean, part of it is that we we work in in teams and groups. I and mean, we're, we're a small organization. I mean, we're about, we're about 25 people. Um, and so that uh, that makes like the pace even crazier sometimes, um, and so there's there's a few of us that like we work primarily on on the on the client success side of things, and so the way that we do this is like you know part of it is, is to do five days we can break it up with each other, so it's like we'll brief in a project with a client, I'll go back and forth with the client to kind of get the framework set up in a way that works, then I, I hop with the research team and then we go over the project, and then they they kind of they take that part and run with it. I know how that works because I used to do that. Um, and I think researchers are some of the hardest working people in the world, um, in terms of like how do we how do we take the data and crunch it so quickly? And so I'm consistently impressed um, with how we're able to do that. And, and kind of the way that works internally too is that we we just do there's a bit of kind of a bounce back and forth. You know, we have like we we kind of set a cadence of like brief together, researcher runs off, then meet together, go over the ideas, and so like we have a we have a set sort of like check in system if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's basically I think how it keeps going because it adds cadence to to like 
a chaotic five days. <laughs> um, you know, and, but then it's it it ultimately works. I think just because we have like we have batons in place to pass off, if that makes sense. You know, mm-hmm. um, but it is it's it's just one of those. Even when I first started the job, um, Ujwal, our CEO, he was like. All right, man, we're excited to work with you, but this is a bit of a sink and sink or swim thing. Like, cause it's, it is, it's like academia is like two years. No, nah, man, here's five days. Um, and it's a shock to the system to do that. Um, but, but it works, you know, it works. You just got to be ready to like hit, hit the pedal to the metal as it were, and <laughs> and just keep going. Yeah. You know, and as I've always said, whether, I don't know, I don't know if on the podcast or at least privately when talking with people that, you know, I feel that, you know, as long as we're making improvements and we can go back for another sort of iteration and continue making improvements, right? We're, we're not trying to solve yeah. everything necessarily in the first pass. Yeah, 100%. You know, 100%. I mean, yes. Um, and, and business is, you know, cool with that, right? I mean, we're, yeah. And so it's, even though it, the cadence is, you know, it's, it, it's, you know, it's a fast pace, but it, it fits within the context ultimately. Yeah. You know, no. the way you, you often work together. Yeah. And I think that's a valuable point that iteration is a much, bigger word in business than we see in academia, right? I mean, you iterate all the time in academia, but faster sprints work because you're able to iterate quickly also, right? And you're, you're right. It's like not one and done. It's like, we're going to do this sprint, then we're going to double click into something else after that. And like, keep, we're going to build our knowledge until we have what we need or refine our process um, because that was either too fast or didn't work or whatever it is. And so um, speed is not the enemy. If we, you know, message to academia, like speed is not your enemy, but um but the, it means you have to then be cool with iteration, which I think is a, a blessing for lack of a better word. Um, and then to your other point that you just said there, that um, if we can learn to work in teams more, we can accomplish way more in, yeah. in a faster amount of time. You know, Yeah. And so that brings up something you, you know, you said you were first in the research job and now you've sort of moved into into this other role. And so it sounds like you're touching on a few things now, you know, you're around the research though, maybe not doing it all. And it seems like you're leading some people interacting with clients. So that brings in some other skills that anthropologists can contribute to the process, right? There's some organizational Mm -hmm. things in there, right? And so there's, there's a bit more that you get to bring than uh, being just a researcher when you're in a role, you know, a position of influence, such as that. Yeah. So anything you've learned from that experience that you think is worth sharing? Um, no, I mean, that's a good point too. I mean, it's, it's, you know, the, the way I kind of think about that is, you know, when we think about anthropology in business or where we might go, like one part of it could be you're an anthropologist working in business. Um, and so you bring perhaps some anthropological skill sets to bear in terms of like managing people or how you might frame a problem. Um, and another side that's interesting is like, if you are, uh, you know, if your work is to do anthropology in, in, in business, you know, and, and we don't have to make too much of a distinction there, but like there, those can be different in terms of like, um, you know, if I, if I, um, I don't know if I'm working in, in, I don't know, the oil field and I'm doing management and I'm an anthropologist, that's one thing. And I can like bring anthropological thinking to frame meetings, or if I'm an anthropologist delivering anthropological research or, or mindsets to, to clients. And so, um, I mean, part of it is, is, is this in terms of like, how can we think more holistically about our roles? Like both, you know, bringing the, you know, either our ourselves in terms of like, what is our training for the kind of work that we're doing? Um, but then I think, um, I don't know, I guess for me, it's just a question too of like, which I didn't realize before when I was, when I was like looking to get into business, uh, understanding like this, this kind of difference, right? Do I want to be an anthropologist at my job for lack of a better term? Um, or do I want to be able to bring my anthropological skill set to work? And and they're just like the different roles will ask for that differently. And so, um, you know that you know depending on the kind of work that, that somebody does, I think so. Um, it's like anthropology in other things, or anthropology is is the work itself, I guess. And so, um, I didn't know that anthropology could be the work. I guess if, if that's a if that's a way to say that. And so, um, I don't think either is better, but like um, I didn't know that distinction existed before I was looking in, into the into the into the business world, if that makes sense. And so, um, I don't know if I, that's something, I guess that's something I've learned. I don't know what to do with that, but just like, um, you know, it's been helpful to realize that there is a difference in that. Um, I'm happier doing anthropology work, but, um, you know, I think they both work. It's just like recognizing that that exists and that mm-hmm. we could, we can, you know, we have choice. Yeah, no, it's certainly a good point. And, um, yeah, I, one of the things I think it brings up is that there's actually a lot of jobs for us 
yeah. that are not necessarily just researchers. They could be research roles, but there's all kinds of places that we can contribute value yeah. and help influence society through business, which, you know, let's face it, business, if you were to think of it as, I mean, business has essentially replaced religion, right? As sort of like the major mover of, of you know, society and, and all. And so um, it is of importance that we are there and contributing, you know, like I've also had some people say like, you know, question me about like, why would I be working in that space? And I tell them like, you know, what if we're not there? What, what are these product services going to turn out right and turn out like, and so, you know, it's of value that we're there and contributing. And so you're trying to contribute in other ways, you know, and obviously you're going to keep TAL going, but you also are going to be speaking at South by Southwest, which, you know, you let you, say a little bit about in just a second, but, uh, you know, other things you'll be at AAA, you're running, um, uh, you know, a session at uh, Society for Applied Anthropology. And so in all these sort of endeavors, I mean, feel free to talk about any of them, but you know, what is it that you're now sort of trying to communicate about business and what do you want kind of everybody to hear? Yeah, no, that, that's a, that's a good, a good, a good broad thinking there. So, um, I mean, the, I don't know. I guess the way I think about a lot of this now is that I'm I've become a little bit more obsessed with taking anthropology mainstream. And so to your point about what's the mass mover, business is one of the mass movers in that regard. Um in terms of how do we help get the word out in larger in larger larger ways. And so yeah, for example, um you know speaking at South by Southwest is I'm super excited for it. Um following in your footsteps. Uh you know, and just this idea in terms of, of what are like, following um, from Gigi's footsteps. From Gigi's footsteps, <laughs> yes, right. Yeah. All praise Gigi, you know. Um, yeah. And so, but, but so part of it is, is this in terms of like, what are for me, again, I, I, I love public speaking and I love kind of engaging audiences. And so, um, part of it is how do we find, um, larger venues or venues where we can get the word about anthropology out and South by Southwest is particularly amenable to business anthropology or business thinking for anthropology. And so it's to your point, I think one of the places in which we can have an anthropological impact on business, you know, we're speaking at the uh, the advertising and branding track of the the different tracks that are that are part of the program. Um, in our our uh, our our panel, the title is probably going to change, but the, the the current title is business anthropology and the meaning economy. Um, and and you know, speaking about how can anthropology get us to a more fundamental level of you know why do things mean to people, get us beyond shiny object syndrome and, and like obsession with again behavior and trends, um, and let's get to the underlying things of what is what do things mean to people, and and that's where we're going to get to. Um, delving to the the heart of change, I think. And so, so part of it too, is this is like, how can we help business think more deeply and more profoundly, but also how can we as anthropologists find better public stages in which to do this? And so while I will, I'll continue and always will, you know, do work with um, the AAA and, and SFAA and Epic as I can, um, I think it's important. So, I mean, both, both you too, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm both proud and excited that you have done, you know, TED Talks and S in South by Southwest also, because it's like, this is, these are the places that we need to be also because we're not, anthropologists are not there as much. And so it's important to put ourselves out of our comfort zone. And maybe that's what podcasting was for me back in the day. It was not a thing where anthropologists were, we have to go there. And so, um, you know, I, so, so part of it, I think is, is this in terms of how do we help be in those areas? And, and so, um, you know, uh, just a, as a, a really quick aside that when I would present about podcasting and, and doing ethnographic podcasting work at anthropology conferences, I'd always got like a meh response from people. And that it, you know, sort of might've hurt the ego, but I, you know, I, I got over that right quickly. I was like, okay, I don't really care at the end of the day. It's a conference presentation if you don't like it, but it was interesting to me why there wasn't more interest in media or podcasting. But when I would go speak about anthropology at a podcasting conference, the room blew up. And I was like, wait a minute, there's something, there's something that's, that it's not missing here, but um, if we only always speak to ourselves, we don't realize actually where the impact could actually be. And so South by and Ted talks and, and speaking at non-anthropology conferences about anthropology is where the impact can be most, be most profound, you know? So this is why I said at the beginning, I'm a crappy professor because I don't do well in a, in a, in a class. I mean, I do good in classrooms, but I'm not, I'm not good only there. Um, you know, it's like everything, where else can we, can we be anthropologists? Um, and where is that impact going to have the the most kind of ROI? Sorry to use a business term, but you know, to, <laughs> you know, where can we have that impact? And, and so I think part of it sure. is that that's exciting to me. Um, so South by super excited for it. Um, you know, AAA, SFA, and, and always keep doing TAL too. So there's, I don't know, there's just so much to do. I'm like a kid in a candy store, you know, <laughs> it's like. <laughs> always been. Always been, yeah. 
So, well, I think that's, that's a great point. Um, I, I like the way you framed it that, you know, those other areas that are all very open to anthropology is, is a good place that we need to be. And it's, mm-hmm. I think, a good way to think about it. So congrats on South by Southwest. Good luck there. I'm sure you guys will all do wonderful. Uh, Gigi Taylor is also hosting a get-together. Yeah. Um, hopefully, we may see you there for a business pitch that we've put in. Um, cool. We'll see how that goes. Maybe we'll be there otherwise anyway. Um, but thanks for your leadership with TL and sort of helping to kind of bring many of us forward into sort of this media space. And it was good to talk to you again, as always. Oh, man, it's a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Anthropology and Business Podcast. To learn everything you need to break into business anthropology and why business anthropology is one of the best lenses for contributing to business success, visit my website at madarts.me where I cover many topics related to business anthropology and beyond. There you will find all the podcast episodes, blogs, and news. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.